This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Amid all of this talk about how we get back, maybe eating outdoors, maybe getting back to the office, we know that life is going to be different. And one of the key elements of how we continue to get back is can we test and maybe more importantly, can we trace? Contact tracing has been a term of art that we have all learned. Emily Gurley is with us. She is associate scientist at Johns Hopkins University Bloomberg School of Public Health. She joins us on the phone from Baltimore, as you might be able to tell by the name, the Bloomberg School of Public Health. It's supported by Mike Bloomberg. He is the founder of Bloomberg Philanthropies and Bloomberg LP, the owner of this radio station. Emily, really nice to have you with Carol and myself. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invitation. So, Tell us what's going on, because I feel like contact tracing is one of these things. If I go back and I've lost all sense of time and space at this point, you know, working at home for, for 12 weeks. But it feels like a few weeks ago, this really came to the fore and we said, OK, this is what we need to do. But this is what we need to do is a complicated process or at least a, a fairly onerous process of just standing this up, as they say. Help us understand how it works and where we are. Sure. So contact tracing is not is not new. <laughs> Right. Health departments do this every day across the country. So it's not that we don't know how to do contact tracing or that we're not doing it. The problem is that contact tracing for COVID requires us to do contact tracing at both a scale and speed that are really unprecedented and way beyond what we need for other diseases um, that we currently um, track with the, with this program. So, um, so the, the big lift is getting our programs up to speed, uh, which requires huge resource investments if we're going to do it right. So, um, and what, yeah. what, what's involved, Emily, in doing it right? So doing it right means making sure, so it, it, it doesn't stand alone from testing. It links up with testing. In fact, when someone is diagnosed with COVID-19, that's where the whole chain of events starts. So it's important that folks, uh, you know, as soon as they develop any signs and symptoms are able to get a test, get it quickly and get results quickly. Um, and then from there, uh, a number of things happen. So that person will be contacted by the health department um, about their diagnosis they'll be asked to isolate themselves from others so that they don't uh, you know, transmit the infection on. Um, that's a big ask. There's a lot to sort out there in terms of the logistics of your life if you're not going to have contact with other people while you're sick. And so they help people come up with a plan. They make sure they know where they can get medical care. Um, and then the next part is identifying the people who they may have already infected, the people who they may have exposed. And one of the uh, difficult things about this virus is that people can be infectious and infect other people before they themselves know they're sick. Right. Right. So up to two days before you get sick, you could infect somebody else. 
And it's really, you know, on the day, the first day you start feeling ill is probably one of the days when you're, when you're also very infectious. So, um, so the, the person from the health department who calls, who calls a patient, we're calling them contact tracers. Uh, in this example, they would try to identify who may have been exposed to that patient. And then they get the contact information of those people so that they can let them know that they've been exposed. Because what you want to try to do is ask those people to change their behavior also, to quarantine themselves so that they don't unknowingly infect someone else. Because, again, they if they've been infected, they could become infectious before they know that they're sick. So this is so it's a it's a program facilitated by contact tracers to notify people um, who've been exposed so that we can try to stop chains of transmission. Right. So just I'm I'm going to be a, a voice of skepticism here <laughs> a little bit because go for it. Understanding for it. <laughs> how this works, you know, it feels like one of the tough links in this chain, as it were, is that ask that you just described of. Hey, you're getting a call from a contact tracer because at some point along the course of the last few days or whenever it was, you've been exposed. Do you have any sense of how receptive people are to that of saying, all right, now I've got to take two weeks off of work or two weeks off of, you know, being around my family or, or whatever that is? What evidence do we have in, in terms of candidly, like how people will uh, sort of adopt this behavior? So I think. Well, so adopt the behavior in terms of change their behavior in quarantine. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, I think that there are a couple of ways to think about this. Um, I, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult thing to do, as you say. Um, and there will be some people who will be unwilling to do it. Um, I, um, I believe, however, and I think that the data we have so far shows that people are willing to do it. That's good. Because what's the alternative? The alternative is that you infect people that you know, that you love, uh, that you work with. Um, and as we all know, most of us have people within our world that are at high risk for yes, severe disease. Yes, that's a really good point. Charlie, mentioning some of the latest from Johns Hopkins, which has been closely tracking everything to do with the virus. We've got with us right now Emily Gurley, still still with us, associate scientist at Johns Hopkins University, Bloomberg School of Public Health. As we mentioned earlier, the Bloomberg uh, School of Public Health, supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. One thing I wonder, Emily, is I got a couple of questions. Corporations, Will they, I don't know, what are you hearing? Will they ultimately play a big role in contact tracing? And might it get to a point where they kind of demand it of workers to make sure that everyone is keeping and staying safe? Um, well, I think if we're, if we're going back to work, if we're reopening our societies, there's no no-risk life. Um, so everything we do has to function around reducing risk wherever we can. Um, so our workplaces are, you know, that's where people spend time. So um, I think it just makes sense that uh, corporations are thinking about, you know, in their own particular context, what are the vulnerabilities that they face? Where could, um, where could infections take place? What are they doing to prevent that? Uh, if someone is infected uh, there, I, you would want to know and you'd want to let workers know that mm -hmm. they've been exposed. 
again, for all the reasons that we've already discussed, no one would want to unknowingly infect someone else. I think that you, you know, you should also think about if, um, you know, just your systems and if someone is infected, um, you know, how many contacts have they had? It might be worthwhile to rearrange workflows or how you do business so that if one person is infected, you don't have everyone else uh, quarantining because they've all had close contact with that person. All right. Uh, that's really an, an interesting point. So are you seeing like different areas or different places or different institutions who are sort of doing this well? What, what are the role models that we should be thinking about here, Emily? Um, I think we're all still figuring this out. Yeah. Um, so we're still in learning mode. I think it's important that, uh, you know, anyone who's doing this be reporting out how it's working, uh, what's working, what's not, um, just for everyone's uh, improvement. I think that there are some really low-tech, easy things that we can do, particularly from the business side, that just make a lot of sense, including making sure people know that they should and can stay home when they're sick. Even if you're just feeling a little unwell, it's worth it to stay home in this context. And that will go a long way. So simple, right? But it's just common sense. Um, One last question. What did we learn from HIV contact tracing that can help us here? So contact tracing for HIV is similar. Uh, It doesn't have to be done, again, at the scale and speed as COVID. Um, But we do have a few things that are important. One is, um, you know, stigma doesn't help. It doesn't help prevention efforts. It doesn't help people who are infected. So, um, you know, so we should do everything we can to avoid that. Um, The second thing is it works. Um, Mm -hmm. If we can find people, help them change their behavior so they don't spread it on to others, we're doing a service to our whole community. Um, So I think those are the two major things. Yeah. And that's a really important one. And and I'm glad that you framed it the way that you did in the earlier part of the conversation that you need to remind people. And I do think we're doing a better job of this and I hope it continues to resonate that you know even in the controversy around well I don't want to wear a mask people essentially say listen you have to do this because this isn't just about you this is about the community and I think you put it really well Emily that this is about people that you care about you know people in your family people who you work with your friends your your close circle uh, you know even if you can't get your head around uh, the good of greater society you know you think about uh, the people that you love in many cases. All right, Emily Gurley, thank you so much. Associate Scientist, Johns Hopkins University Bloomberg School of Public Health, joining us on the phone from Baltimore. It is you. It is me. It is everyone. It's like one of those situations, right? Right. You really need to think about your community, the greater good. Uh, And putting on a mask is so simple. So uh, certainly great to hear from her. And and, and and basically, if you're told like you've been exposed, then you need to do something to take yourself out of it in in many ways. And let everybody that you expose know about it, right? Exactly. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. All right, so let's talk a little bit about the world of economics because clearly it is top of mind the back half of this week given all the jobs and jobless data that we are getting. And we also are coming to understand the crises that we're facing are 
economic in many ways at their core. And we're going to talk about that throughout the course of the show. Let's continue the conversation right now with Steve Blitz. He is chief U.S. economist with T.S. Lombard, joining us on the phone from New York City. Steve, it's nice to have you with Carol and myself. I do wonder, as you look at the data that continue to come out, uh, you know, you see the market reacting. And as our own Michael McKee, who I know you know, said earlier, uh, it's quite a day when we say, Oh, 1.9 million jobless claims. Okay, cool. Better than I thought it was going to be. I mean, that it still is hard for me to get my head around it. And yet, you look at this market with a clear eye. What do you see out there? What are the important things we need to be zeroing in on? Well, I think the important things we need to be zeroing in on. First of all, hello, everybody. Hi. Safe. <laughs> How are you? We're doing okay. Um, Hope you are too. Good. Yes, yes, uh, yes, we are. Um, so, the thing to really key on is this. You're looking for two things. You're looking for whether or not there's a broadening of unemployment beyond the initial firms that were shut down. And when you look and read in the paper and Bloomberg reporting this company, that company starting to report layoffs that are, you know, second, third, fourth degrees away from, you know, the local store that gets shut down. That's what you're looking for. And when I looked at the ADP numbers yesterday, and admittedly, employment is a lagging indicator, um, it began to tell me that, one, the $2 million a week in initial unemployment claims is not just an administrative backlog, which we know does exist, but it's also telling us that there is a broadening of unemployment. So what you want to see in the weekly claims numbers is is that number of continuing claims starting to go down, right? Because mm-hmm. as the economy reopens, people get called back. PPP is supposed to put people back on the payroll. There was a big jump in last, and it's really two weeks ago because it lags by a week, but two weeks ago we saw a big drop in continuing claims. That was great. We saw a small, not a small increase, an increase of about 600,000 this week. So that's troubling. And then what should really, if I'm in the equity markets, what I should really be focused on, because the equity markets obviously is a forward discounting mechanism, as we all know, Um, of the people who said they lost their jobs last month, 90% said it was temporary. That's an extraordinarily high number. And that's one of the reasons why forward expectations by consumers and business has been that this is sort of a three-month bank holiday. Yeah, I want to know tomorrow. Yeah, it's going to be a horrendous number. The unemployment number rates are going to be higher, and I and, and, and I get all that. We're going to see that, and that's going to be the headline. But what really look at is has that number shifted? Has people be, have people begun to view their their jobs that were lost no longer being a temporary loss but a permanent loss? Well, and and, that's and going to speak volumes. well, yeah. and Steve, we know, right? Permanent becomes uh, or tempor- temporary, excuse me, becomes permanent, especially if there isn't demand on the other side of this. Like we don't, we don't really know what growth is going to be like on the other side. And maybe we can watch right. Asia for some ideas. You know, as they come back from the virus, they're ahead of us certainly, but we just don't know. And if a business doesn't have demand. They're not going to hold on to workers. They're not going to bring in new workers. I mean, we've we've seen that. We've talked to CEOs who thought we're going to hold on to workers. You know, they you know back when when this all started, and then they've had to let folks go. Right, exactly, and that's why that number is so important. 
the most extraordinary aspect, well, there's a lot of extraordinary aspects, but one of the more extraordinary aspects of this whole downturn is that usually ex- current expectations and forward expectations by consumers, and I'm really looking at the conference board numbers, drop. This time, the current expectations dropped. The forward expectations never did. And if you look at the Philly Fed survey on manufacturing, their current business numbers dropped, as they would normally would in a recession. The forward expectations did not. If those numbers start to slip, the equity market has to slip with it because that forward expectations is also what's built into the equity market. And liquidity works to boost the equity market when the forward expectations are strong. But when those forward expectations start to weak, you know, a lot of money can go into cash, too. And so is that a and how soon will we kind of get a, a really good picture of whether that is the case? Is it measured in weeks or, or is this something that we're going to have to watch for the balance of this year, Steve? I think July, August, if we are not seeing some real improvement or the numbers, we, we will see improvement. Uh, I mean, I do think the unemployment rate is going to go from, say, 25 percent down to 8, 10 percent. And that's yeah. going to feel great. But 8-10% in this country is a severe recession. Right. And by August, you're going to see, we should begin to see whether or not the unemployment rate is settling into, not only is it that it's settling into this 8 to 10% range, but who's unemployed moves up from the low-skilled, you know, low-wage worker right. to, to exactly what, Carol, you were just talking about, which is it starts to move up. The food chain, so to speak, that's a terrible word to say it, but it's a word that just came out live, but moves up the income chain to people, who, to higher skilled, higher income workers. And right. that's going to change the political tenor of yes. it as well. Which is what our Bloomberg Economics team, they've done a lot of work on this. Uh, we talked with Yelena Shalitjeva about it yesterday, that it's, you know, that second wave is not blue collar, it's white collar. So it really definitely changes uh, the dynamics. It's all bad. I, whether you're blue collar or white collar, it's not good. Steve Blitz, thank you so much. Chief U.S. Economist at T.S. Lombard on the phone uh, in upstate New York. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Jason Kelly. Yes. We actually have had some IPO activity as of late. We have indeed. Uh, Coming back slowly, but it's uh, been a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting. You know, I was listening to a, a conversation David Weston was having with a banker, uh, an advisor, I believe, right before we came on the air, mm-hmm. and you know, talking about M and A activity, IPO activity. I mean, certainly, look, bankers don't get paid if they don't get deals done. But you do wonder about the the kind of the shape and the substance of these deals, both companies going public and M&A activity out there. We know that private equity deals are continuing to happen in some form or fashion. We had the KKR Cody deal. Yep, that's our daily mention of Cody, but I'm sure you'll mention it in the stocks too. Done. Um, but, uh, you know, you do think about how money gets deployed because, as we know, there is this wall of capital uh, that needs to be put to work from a private equity perspective. And, look, we, we have a stock market that is very healthy. Well, and so why wouldn't you go into that market at this point? It's, if you very, could? it's very simple, too, when it comes to initial public offerings. Companies do not bring companies public or bankers don't bring companies public companies don't startups don't want to go public if the market isn't warm and welcoming and so when you start to see activity that 
that's optimism about the business environment. Warner Music, of course, just going public. And then, of course, today we had a big one, uh, Zoom Info. Don't be confused with Zoom, the virtual and cloud-based video conferencing uh, company, um, which has also been out there. But Zoom Info, the ticker is ZI. It uh, IPO'd at $21 a share, shot up. Uh, in its first day of trading. And lucky for us, we actually have Henry Schock. He's the founder and CEO at Zoom Info, and he joins us on the phone from, I believe, Vancouver, Washington. Um, Henry, first of all, congratulations um, on the IPO. I got to ask you right out of the gate, though, $21 at prices at, it shot as high as $40. Do you kind of feel like the bankers mispriced this one? Uh Thank you for having me on. Um, you know, I don't. Look, I, I, we brought together the best advisors in the world with J.P. Morgan and Morgan Stanley and Credit Suisse and Barclays and B of A. And so we feel like we, 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 feel like we brought the best brains in the world to this. And you know, look, I'm not looking at the, the price today. The stock will do what the stock does today. We're building value for long-term shareholders who will be with us five, 10 years from now and longer. And so I'm focused on building a business that creates value for them. I have the same business today that I had yesterday and the stock market doesn't really affect what we're building. So Henry, talk to us about this process. I mean, and I think probably from a Bloomberg, you're going to hear more about the nuts and bolts than, than anything because, you know, our audience, our people are the folks who put these sorts of deals together. And I do wonder, you know, given your experience and your expectations, what it was like to do a deal like this in a world that is still very much at home. Yeah, I mean, we did our we did the roadshow completely from home. Um, we obviously we spent the last year meeting with investors across the country and getting them familiar with our story. I think it would probably be pretty difficult to to do this in a, if we hadn't already done that. And so by the time we came up to running a virtual roadshow, uh, you know, a, the, a big contingent of the investors we were talking to had met us. They had understood the story. They understood the management team. And so being able to do, do this virtually was actually, you know, some, a blessing in a lot of ways. You know, ending a day after eight or nine or ten meetings and being able to walk out the door to my wife and my four-year-old daughter is a, a lot more interesting than finishing the day, having dinner with a banker, and then <laughs> sleeping in a random hotel room in New York or San Francisco. Bra- breaking it down at the hotel bar at the Marriott in Midtown, you know, <laughs> trying to Henry, uh, you know make small talk with a banker. Yeah, that sounds wi- a lot better. Your wife and daughter say thank you very much. They're very appreciative that <laughs> yes. you said that. Um, listen, you know, as we kidded at the top, you're not Zoom, the one that we've all been Zooming with our families or having, you know, after-hour cocktail parties or having lots of meetings, more likely, um, with at this hour. What what exactly do you guys do? You're a SaaS company, right? Yeah, so we're a SaaS company that helps sales and marketing professionals. Today, over 200,000 of them at 15,000 different companies find their next best customer. We do that through a mix of technology, data, and analytics. But if I'm a B2B salesperson or a B2B marketer, and I need to go to market in an effective and efficient way, we make that possible through our platform, through our data, through our insights. Are you worried? Because I know some of your customers in retail, restaurant, hotels, airlines. Hmm. These are obviously industries that we know have been impacted severely by the pandemic. Are you a little nervous about the business outlook? 
No, look, I think for a little less than four, about 4% of our business is in heavily impacted industries. I think what we're most excited about is what we're seeing in the SMB segments in our business and what we're seeing in the enterprise segments of our business. In the SMB, what we're seeing is companies pivoting their business models and using our platform to do that. There's a great story in our S1 about a company called Tentcraft that makes outdoor tents for events. And as the pandemic hit, literally every event on the face of the earth disappeared. And Tentcraft came to us and said, I think we can use these tents for COVID-19 testing for hospitals and healthcare facilities. Can you help us figure out how many hospitals there are in the United States, where they're located, who, who the decision makers are at those hospitals? And we were able to give them access to our platform. And last month, they had their biggest revenue month in history, going from a place where they had no business left to the biggest revenue month of their history, all powered by the Zoom Info platform. And we're well, there you go. The yeah. All right. Well, we're eager to keep in touch with you, see how it goes. Congratulations. Uh, hopefully you're breathing a little bit of a sigh of relief. Uh, go have a drink. Founder and CEO of Zoom Info. Go home Henry to your Shuck. wife and daughter. He's there. He's already <laughs> there. Right. He, he just has to walk outside. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It's time for the drive to the close. Delighted to have back with us. It's been too long. Anne Maletti, head of Active Equity, easy for me to say, at Wells Fargo Asset Management. They look after about $518 billion. That's half a trillion, Carol Masser. Uh, she joins us on the phone. Good from, math there, Jason Kelly. Nicely yeah, well, done. That's why you know I have no business uh, <laughs> really talking about any of this stuff. But Ann Maletti does. She joins us on the phone from Menominee Falls, Wisconsin. So, Ann, it's really nice to have you with us. First of all, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you guys doing? We're doing okay. I mean, yeah. it's been a, you know, we were putting together our weekend show earlier today, and I think, candidly, just revisiting all the conversations we've had this week, I, I, I don't want to speak for Carol, but I will, um, it's heavy. Like, no, it's, it's very really heavy, heavy, I think, what, what we're all going through. And I do yeah. wonder, um, you know, we've spent some, we've spent a lot of time with you over over the years, and, and I feel like you are a person who is acutely aware of others. I know you're an active volunteer and, you know, someone who really brings their own experience to, to bear on all this. And, and I do wonder what you think in a time like this in your community and as you're talking to your family and others. Well, thank you for asking. And I, I do feel like I have to give a special shout out to all of my friends and people in New York. Um, you all have been hit so hard over the last few months um, with really three crises, and it's been the healthcare crisis and an economic crisis and certainly now a social crisis. But um, as I focus so much on the market, I, I do think it's hard to ignore the pain that's going on and taking place in all of the communities that I live in. And while I live in the Midwest, um, we, we can't escape our own communities even in the Midwest don't escape the pain that happens when we see tragedies, tragedies like we saw in Minneapolis. 
um, but but we're all impacted by it. And I, I think at Wells Fargo, I'm lucky enough to work for a company that really does push its employees to dedicate time in their communities. And um, as, as a company, we've we've volunteered just under two million hours to projects in our communities. And um, the foundation has, you know, put grants aside to focus specifically in communities. But I personally have been involved in an organization called Secure Futures, and it's it's really been one that focuses on financial literacy. Mostly important to me is that it focuses at a young age, and it's with high school kids. And when you touch people at a young age and tell them both the pros and cons of how to deal with finances, why you may not want to go into a check cashing store, um, you know, trying to teach them from maybe your own personal mistakes you made when you were young, but also the mistakes of others. And despite where I am today, I've lived through um, my own challenges in life. And they're not the same as some of the students I've talked to, but I think by sharing our own experiences, that's something that kids can relate to. And no one teaches you in high school what a credit score means and why you shouldn't go into a check cashing store. And many of the students you know, believe that banks are for rich people and that they were unattainable, that they couldn't go into them. And so teaching financial literacy is something that can unlock power in students at a young age and something that can help them um, more for the future. It's a small thing, and it it is just a small thing. difference that I think I can make. But if it's one person doing one thing, hopefully we have we have many other volunteers, as I said earlier. It's not just me. Um, it, it, it's, it's actions. I know actions speak louder than words. And I hope we're all doing some of that as business leaders in our communities to make a difference. And I do wonder, no, I think you bring up a good point, and I think education, you know, more equal education for everyone will provide more equal access to, you know, becoming part of the system, um, you know, is really important. But, and I do wonder about specifically, you know, you talk about programs at Wells Fargo, but I do wonder about the role. We keep talking to some great voices throughout the week, you know, money talks, and whether you're a company that puts money to programs that um, then do contracts with minority-owned businesses, whether you make sure when you're doing an internship program you bring in minority, you know, um, interns. I mean, there's ways to really change the system, and I do wonder how the conversation might be changing at Wells Fargo as a result of this week. Yeah, it's interesting. I just got off the phone earlier this afternoon with um, the CEO of our asset management business, and we were having a conversation about our, our about our hiring processes. And although we've focused for years on diversity, um, he would still like to make a bigger difference. And why um, don't we? Why we is know. it so? Why is yeah. it so tough? Why don't we? Because we, yeah. we've all had programs in place for a long time. I'm curious what you yeah. guys are observing. Yeah, yeah. I, I really, Carol. It, it's it's been it's been a question that's been presented to me for a long time, and I. It gets back to you. I, I think we we all um, we all go back to the same pond to fish in, right? For the talent, 
And if you think about um, being in finance, you go to some of the same schools to recruit, to some of the same programs to recruit. And when I came into this business, I was lucky to come into it at a time, you know, more than 20 years ago where a lot of these programs did not exist. You, you could come in with a liberal arts background and, you know, you were trained by other people that were in this business. And, you know, yes, there still are licensing programs and you still have the CFA and other programs to make sure people are well qualified. You could go to business school after. But I think we can bring in, we can fish in different ponds and bring people in in different mm-hmm. ways and train them, right? But we'll get, we'll get more diverse pools if we fish in bigger ponds and different right. ponds than we just do. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to leave it there. We didn't get to talk about the market, but I dare say we had a more interesting conversation uh, with Anne Belletti. Always thoughtful. We really always enjoy our time with her. Head of Active Equity. I still can't say it. Wells Fargo Asset Management. Joining us on the phone from Menominee Falls. And there's a clear line, and I think you were alluding to it, Carol, between what Anne just said in Wisconsin, what we heard from John Hope Bryant earlier in Atlanta, that this is an economic crisis This is a crisis of poverty. This is a crisis of education to a large extent. And what Anne was just talking about when it comes to financial literacy and just getting folks, getting young people that basic understanding of candidly how money works, how the system works, really is at the heart of this. So uh, I feel like a theme is emerging here. Right. They understand how it works, that they can be part of the system, right, and be part of the masses. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.